Today on Against the Grain, great powers rise and fall. But when their power wanes, as Britons did in the early 20th century, and the U.S. arguably is waning now, who shoulders the costs of their decline? Is it elites or those on the bottom? Sociologist Richard Lockman joins me to discuss what the past can tell us about the future of empires and hegemons. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Is the United States an empire in decline? And if so, what does that mean for the country and for the world? Richard Lockman, who teaches sociology at the State University of New York, Albany, argues that the imperial histories of France, the Netherlands, Spain, and the UK can tell us a great deal about the future of the United States. He delves into the rise and unraveling of empires and hegemons in first-class passengers on a sinking ship, Elite Politics and the Decline of Great Powers, which is published by Verso. Richard, what's the prevailing wisdom about why great powers decline? Is decline an inevitability? Most people who study great powers do feel that decline is inevitable. I mean, what varies is how long the power is able to maintain its position, you know, ranging from the Roman Empire that did it for 500 years down to the Netherlands that did it for perhaps 30 years. But, you know, I think while there's agreement on that, there's disagreement over what causes empires to fall. That, you know, probably historically the dominant view is that the ruling classes of an empire become weak and decadent. That's certainly the main explanation that people in ancient Rome made at the time and later authors like Gibbon made. And, you know, it's also been applied to Britain and now to the United States. But that sort of explanation ends up being circular. The evidence that elites are becoming weak is just that they're unable to rule and then they're unable to rule because they're weak. And they're, I think, you know, much more persuasive explanations that, you know, try to look at structural reasons. So, you know, some people will say they decline because great powers get into too many wars and that either they just don't have the resources to win all the battles or that the cost of war undermines the overall economy and then they become ever less able to finance their military expenses. You know, back in the 80s, Paul Kennedy wrote a book that made that argument and that got a lot of attention and is still something that many people turn to. And so in looking at these explanations, I've found problems with all of them. And that's why I wanted to see if I could develop a different explanation. And the one that I came up with focuses on the ability of elites to cement their privilege in ways that limit government's ability to adopt different policies and also absorbs resources that, you know, in the sense, elites take up more and more of government budgets just to enrich themselves or for projects that they have an interest in that don't do anything to maintaining dominance. And we'll talk a lot more about precisely that sort of dynamic as it's played out historically and in the present. But I wanted to ask you just for clarification at the beginning, if you could tell us the difference between, as we think of great powers, between an empire and a hegemon. An empire is an entity that conquers peoples and lands you know, outside of their center and rules it directly. So, you know, we look at ancient empires, they had armies, they would go beyond their home territory and incorporate these other areas in an unequal way. You know, for the most part, people in these conquered areas didn't become citizens. They had to obey the rulers from the center. They had to send tax money or an ancient empire slaves as well. And 
then we see that in modern empires. The, for example, the British Empire, you know, at its peak in the 19th century, controlled a quarter of the world's surface, and everything outside of Britain itself was ruled. And, you know, some cases, you know, the white settler territories in a somewhat more gentle way, and, and the other territories in an extremely brutal way. And, you know, the goal wasn't to win consent, it was just to extract resources. What's different in the modern capitalist world is that in addition to empires, there have been powers that rule through hegemony. They don't directly rule, but they're able to use their economic and military power to set up global terms of trade, global terms of politics that allow the country at the center to reap way disproportionate benefits and also to impinge on the internal decisions made in these other countries. So, you know, if we look at Britain, it obviously was an empire, but it also was a hegemon. It exerted control over much of Latin America, even though it never directly ruled that as a hegemon. And if we look at the United States today, it you know, has few or no colonies, but nevertheless, it dominates most of the world. Tell us about Spain and France, which you grouped together as an example of a certain kind of great power and decline. Can you tell us about the fate of Habsburg Spain and France under Louis Fourteenth, and then under Napoleon and their history of colonial and military power? Well, they both you know, for a period were able to be the leading military powers within Europe. And, you know, Spain under the Habsburgs was able to accumulate what was then the biggest empire in the world. And, you know, with Napoleon, he dominated much of Europe. And, you know, both he and earlier Louis XIV had significant empires, but they were never able to leverage the sort of military dominance and the empires they had into hegemony. And the reason for that was because they were unable to maintain control over both elites within France and Spain itself, and also over elites in the colonies. Those elites were able to win a great deal of autonomy and to hold on to the revenues that were generated in these lands. So you know, we hear a lot about Spain's American empire, the gold and silver that supposedly came to Spain, but very quickly, almost all of the gold and silver remained in the hands of Spanish elites who were in the Americas. So on paper, it looked like a great empire. On paper, it looked like the state was getting enormous revenues, but most of that never made it to the center. And so there weren't the resources for Spain to actually embark on projects that might have built a hegemony. Well, contrast those experiences of Spain and France with the Netherlands. What made it a formidable power and what ultimately caused it to decline? With the Netherlands at first, it was able to centralize various elites into both the state and also into a company, the Dutch East India Company. So in the early stages of European imperialism, they were able to mobilize large resources and grab trade routes and colonies and you know, were able to govern Amsterdam in a way that allowed it to become, you know, not just a center where spices and gold and silver were brought from the rest of the world, but also to create the first modern stock market and also the first real banking center where people from throughout Europe could come and borrow money. But that also gave Dutch merchants the power to regulate the economies in the rest of Europe. And the reason this hegemony was undone was because fairly quickly, the various elites were able to monopolize control over specific offices. And, you know, as these offices became essentially the property of families, 
they're no longer with central control. They were authorities in Amsterdam were unable to make officials who had these inherited offices in colonies or in the Dutch military follow central directions. And then, of course, they were able to make, keep the profits that these particular offices generated so that the money of the Dutch state, just like with the Spanish and French, really you know, wasn't a national budget in the way that we think about today, where you have central authorities saying, what are we going to spend on the military? What are we going to spend on other projects? Are we going to borrow money? Are we going to set a tax rate? Those decisions couldn't be made centrally. So the real militarily, the turning point was that the Dutch fought four wars with the British, who were their great rivals, and then supplanted them as a hegemon. And in each of these wars, the Dutch Navy was bigger than the British Navy, but they lost these wars because the so-called Dutch Navy was really six separate navies, one for the East India Company, one for the West India Company, one for Amsterdam, and the others for other Dutch provinces. And if the elites in each of these entities disagreed on the goal of the war, they just held their ships back. So, you know, this Dutch Navy wasn't able to fight in a unified way. And that's really not an uncommon story that, you know, up until the 19th century, when you had central governments and mass conscription, armies weren't unified. You know, if we go back to the feudal era, you had nobles showing up with their retainers and, you know, they each had ideas of whether a war should be fought, how a battle should be conducted. And if they disagreed with the king or whoever the nominal commander was, they just sat out the battle. So, you know, we really can't engage in this sort of anachronistic era of projecting backward from today and imagining that's how wars were fought in previous centuries. Well, tell us about the British Empire, which, as you say, was also a hegemon. Can you describe for us its rise and fall and talk about this dimension of a centralized state in its fortunes? Yeah, and Britain really is the most successful modern hegemon. It lasted longer than the Dutch and longer than it appears that U.S. hegemony will last. And it sustained that hegemony through the Industrial Revolution. So this was a political structure that was created in an era of early capitalism and managed to maintain its power as the world industrialized. So, you know, from the point of view of power and rule, that's an enormous achievement. The British were able to do that by creating a structure that, you know, wasn't consciously created. It was a result of victories and defeats and compromises over a number of centuries as elites fought each other for power as peripheral areas, Scotland, Ireland, were brought into Britain itself and as Britain built its empire. And the structure created a basis for compromise among elites while also forcing these elites to act within the state, undermining their sort of local autonomy. And so as a result, it was much easier for the British state to raise revenues to centrally decide how to spend it. It had a unified national army and it was able to exert increasing control over colonies. So, you know, through much of Britain's hegemony, India was the crucial colony. It was the one that generated the most revenue where the highest profit margins could be made if Britons wanted to invest in its empire. And of course, India also provided millions of soldiers for British wars. You know, in the 19th century, when Britain fought various wars, most of those wars weren't fought by soldiers who were British. They were colonial subjects, and they, by far most of them were from India. And even in the two world wars, there were millions of Indians who fought on the side of Britain. So this colony initially was not formally British. It was owned by the British East India Company. But as that company 
increasingly became autarkic, keeping the revenues for itself, creating offices that key officials in the company were able to manage for their own benefit. And as the company then became, because of that became ever less able to maintain control over India, the British government nationalized it. It was able to override the interests of this very powerful and extremely wealthy colonial elite and draw it into the British government. So this really was a political structure that was able to counteract you know, this inevitable tendency of elites to try to cement their own particular interests and withhold resources from other elites and from a central state. And I think that was what was most crucial in allowing Britain to maintain its hegemony and to maintain this huge empire for so long. Well, why was that undone is you got to the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century. And in the book, I try to show why it was that Britain lost that hegemony before the two world wars. You know, there are many authors who make the argument that Britain still would have been the hegemon if it hadn't been for the two world wars, that that's what sapped its power. But in fact, it had lost its dominance before that and economically was doing much less well than the US and Germany and even militarily was in an ever weaker position. And the argument I make is that, again, there were particular elites who were able to cement their own interests. And it was in large part within Britain in the industrial and financial sector that companies were either family owned or family controlled. And these families were drawing out revenues, not investing or agreeing to merge to try to attain the sort of scale that would have allowed them to compete with the much larger American and German firms. And so Britain lost its industrial dominance, you know, that weakened its ability to maintain economic control within the empire. And increasingly, Britain became economically what it still is today, a financial center that the British economy is basically the economy of the banks in the city of London. And that on its own is not a basis for hegemony. Sociologist Richard Lockman is my guest. We're talking about his book, First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship, Elite Politics and the Decline of Great Powers. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So let's then turn to the United States, which supplanted Britain as the dominant hegemon. You write that since the 1960s, at sort of the apex of U.S. hegemonic power, the U.S. has been moving from consensus to paralysis. Can you tell us what you mean by that? What I mean by consensus is that elites were either able to or were made to come together and you know, subordinate to some extent their particular interests to the goals that were set centrally of maintaining U.S. hegemony. And so, you know, this structure was created in large part in the New Deal. You know, when we think about the New Deal, for the most part, what we think about are the sorts of social programs that were created, the spending that in part pulled the United States out of the Great Depression. But the lasting effect, or one of the main lasting effects of the New Deal was to create a structure that the architects of the Roosevelt administration felt would prevent another Great Depression. And that was one of dividing up the U.S. economy into national and local level firms. So you can go industry by industry, and there was a structure of legislation and regulation that was created that prevented any individual firm or any cartel of firms from totally dominating an industry. So if we take a look at finance, which you know then is now set off the economic crises, in the New Deal you had 
legislation that created different sorts of banks. You had large national banks that were able to engage on their own part in financial investment. Then you had commercial banks that were limited mainly to just giving loans to industrial corporations. You had local banks that gave out mortgages. You had credit unions. And so the economy was really in that way divided up and you had a balance between national local firms and you had different sectors kept apart. There was strong antitrust law that prevented mergers either within these segments or across these segments. And these local corporations, even though they were individually weak, had a great deal of political power because in the United States, members of Congress, of course, are elected from states and districts. You know, so if you're a small industrial firm, say in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the national economy, you're not very much, but in Fort Wayne, you're the biggest employer. And so the local member of Congress is going to have to, in Washington, defend that company's interests. And of course, you know, any member of Congress who's even minimally competent will understand that he or she has to engage in log rolling, support other members of Congress's proposals and legislation in return for getting the votes to protect what's of importance within that member's district. So this was a quite durable sort of structure. It prevented elites from acting on their own, pursuing interests in a way that would be disruptive to the overall national economy. And then on top of that, beyond the elites, there were powerful labor unions and there were mass member organizations that swung a lot of weight because they were also ones that had local chapters. So, you know, to just take one example, you know, for those of us who lived through the Vietnam War, the American Legion is seen as an awful organization, you know, a group of militarists who, you know, were diehard supporters of the war, but it also was a mass member veterans organization. And during World War II, the active members were World War I veterans. And as World War II was coming to an end, these veterans would be sitting in their local Legion lodges, you know, drinking, talking, and they'd say, when World War I ended, we were cut loose. We came home and there were no jobs for us. We got no government support. You know, we all came back from the war. We needed places to live. There wasn't enough housing. We want to be sure that our children who are now coming home from World War II aren't going to face that. And so in these local legion halls, they said, you know, what should they get? Well, they shouldn't all be pushed into the labor market. So the government should offer to pay for them to go back to school, go to college or a trade school, and that'll hold them out of the labor market for a few years. You know, they should get government support so they can get a mortgage to buy a home so they won't have to move in with their parents or be homeless or live in tiny quarters. They should get medical care. And, you know, out of that, this, you know, the ideas bubbled up and you have this national level organization that pushed for what became the GI Bill. And, it, you know, this was now late in World War II. It was eight years after any significant social measure of the New Deal had passed, that Roosevelt had lost the liberal majority in Congress, but this bill sailed through even though it had very expansive social provisions. Why? Because every member of Congress knew that they were these American Legion members in their district who were paying attention, knew how the debate on this bill was going, knew what provisions were included and not. They had no choice but to approve it even though most of them were against a further expansion in social programs. And of course, you know, in part, the GI Bill has been expanded to people who aren't veterans. So, you know, now, you know, in an increasingly limited way, you know, any American student can get government guaranteed loans. And if they're poor enough, can get Pell Grants. And that made possible a second wave of expansion of college enrollment. You know, the first big one came at the end of World War II with all these veterans 
going to school with the GI Bill. But then as these government programs in the 60s were expanded beyond veterans, it was another huge boost in college enrollment. You know, many Americans, you know, aren't veterans are able to get government supported assistance to buy homes. And of course, the notion that veterans get health care, you know, then became the justification for Medicare, Medicaid, and Obamacare. And is, you know, now, you know, something that Bernie Sanders refers to in explaining the need for Medicare for all. So you had, you know, both, you know, among elites and also non-elites, these structures that you know, balanced power prevented any one actor from working unilaterally or siphoning off too many resources. And so that's what I mean by the consensus. It's not that everybody agreed on everything, but the different elites and non-elites were sort of forced together into forums where they had to compromise. Yeah. So what changed there and brought us to the kind of paralysis, as you term it? It came in in two ways. You know, one was that the sort of basis for popular mobilization was undermined. And the you know biggest was, you know, the progressive undermining of labor unions. So that, you know, we went from a peak in the 1950s and 60s of a third of American workers belonging to labor unions to now it being under a tenth. You know, another was the undoing of these mass member organizations, you know, for a variety of reasons. You know, people no longer spend their lives in a particular urban neighborhood or in a small town. And, you know, there's obviously a benefit to that. You're not stuck living in the same place your entire life, but the sorts of linkages that gave people familiarity with each other, you know, led them to feel that they had common interests and, you know, could act through these mass member organizations was lost. And then also a negative side of these mass member organizations was that, you know, they were discriminatory, you know, they'd be all white, they'd be African American affiliate organizations, you know, they local neighborhoods and towns were often highly segregated. So you'd have one chapter that would be an Irish Catholic one, you'd have a, another that would be a Norwegian one. And, you know, to some extent, this discrimination has been undone. And, you know, that's obviously an enormous gain in this country, but it undermined one of the bases that made it easier to maintain these organizations. And then finally, while there's still mass member organizations today, you know, they're not ones where members are active. You know, we all get these email appeals. A few decades ago, we, you know, got paper appeals saying, send in a check, you know, be a member of this campaign, this organization. But of course, you know, those are just designed to generate money to support professional staff in Washington. You know, they don't have the sort of local bases that allow them to put real pressure on elected officials to pass legislation. And then on the elite level, the big change was that beginning with the Nixon administration, there's been an undermining of antitrust and corporations were allowed to merge with each other. And this eliminated this sort of local counterbalance to these national firms and destroyed this sort of careful division of power, division of markets that was established in the New Deal. And so you got a sort of ratcheting effect. You had mergers and that, you know, then eliminated enough of these local firms that su supported the sorts of rules that protected them so that you could have regulatory changes or legislative changes that then allowed more mergers or weakened the position of local firms. So they had a agree to be bought out by national firms. And so we then arrived at the sort of position we have today where, you know, you don't have very many significant local level firms. Most industries are dominated by a few gigantic firms. And these firms then have the 
political power and the lack of any pushback from local level firms to push through deregulation. You know, so if we look at what happened at the end of the Clinton administration when these bills that deregulated telecommunications and finance were passed, similar bills had been proposed in under previous administrations, but they couldn't pass because you had local firms saying, if you allow this deregulation, we're going to get wiped out. And they had the political power to push back against it. Once you get toward the end of the 1990s, there no longer were that many local firms left. They'd been merged out of existence and these bills passed and you know, we have all the consequences we've seen of that. that you know, television and other media are controlled by very few gigantic firms and finances in the hands of you know, just very few banks that are free to engage in whatever speculation they want and set off one financial crisis after another. I'm speaking with sociologist Richard Lachman. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'm joined today by Richard Lockman. He's professor of sociology at the State University of New York, Albany, and he's the author of First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship, Elite Politics and the Decline of Great Powers, which is published by Verso and at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. So taking things to the present now, what are the signs, as you see it, of U.S. decline? And, and let me just say that it seems to me somewhat tricky in flagging these things because there's the question of the decline, say, of Americans domestically, such as the standard of living, and then the decline of the U.S. as a hegemonic power. So I wanted to ask you what you see the signs are of U.S. decline, but I wonder if you could flag for us uh, the difference between those. They are different. I mean, you know, if we look at previous hegemons, when Britain declined, the standard of living for most Britons continued to improve. So most people in Britain, in their own lives, didn't feel that their country was in decline. You know, in the U.S., it's quite different. The, you know, most Americans are less well off than they were in previous decades. And, you know, there are various, you know, signs of, you know, one that the, you know, median income for individual workers, you know, today in 2021 is, you know, 10% higher than it was 50 years ago. So, you know, this is almost medieval levels of improvement of much less than 1% per year. And to the extent that families are better off than they were 50 years ago, it's because they don't just have a male breadwinner working, they have both parents working. So you have double the amount of work to give you a little bit more income. In the United States you know, was the leader in the percentage of people who had post-secondary you know, university educations. Now, the United States is 15th and continuing to fall. You know, we see in healthcare, the United States spends much more than any other country in the world, but the statistics for terms of life expectancy, maternal mortality are worse than almost any other wealthy country. You know, so by these measures of individual living, we're 
worse off. You know, in terms of hegemony, the sun, it's an uneven picture. You know, if we look at the industrial sector, the United States is doing less well in one industry after another. I mean, there's certainly some industries, some of the high-tech ones where the U.S. still has leadership, but, you know, even in that, U.S. firms are being challenged by ones elsewhere. And of course, these U.S. firms are able to maintain their dominance only because they're able to attract engineers from elsewhere in the world to come to the United States. You know, the day when Chinese and Indian engineers decide they're going to stay at home and not come to work in the U.S., these firms are done for. If we, you know, the one sector where the U.S. still is maintaining its dominance is in the financial sector. And, you know, it's some irony in that, that in each crisis, the role of the Federal Reserve becomes more powerful. And so the Federal Reserve today is really the global regulator of finance. You know, it sets the rules that banks all over the world have to follow. It decides what's going to be done when there's any crisis. And so this is the one sector where the U.S. still clearly is hegemonic. And of course, in part, hegemony is backed by force. You know, the hegemon doesn't, when they set the rules, you know, behind that, perhaps unstated is, if you don't follow our rules, our powerful military is going to come and make you do that, or we're going to destroy your country because you're not accepting our leadership. And, you know, the U.S., despite spending more on its military than the next 10 countries combined and having a huge technological edge, is unable to win wars. It loses one war after another. You know, in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, the U.S. wasn't defeated in the way that, you know, say the French were in Vietnam, where their soldiers were surrounded and massacred by the other side, but they were defeated in that the U.S. has had to leave all of these countries without achieving its objectives. That, you know, it couldn't make the governments that were in power in these countries do what the U.S. wanted to do. So after years, the loss of many American lives, the killing of, you know, multiples more of Vietnamese, Afghans, or Iraqis, you know, the spending of vast amounts of money, the U.S. had to leave, you know, unable to achieve its objectives. And why do you think that is, that the U.S. is, as you say, far outstrips every other country in the world in terms of military spending, the sophistication of its military technology, certainly its, its will to power to dominate. Why is it that the U.S. can't win these wars? I think there are three factors. You know, one is that most of the military spending goes for weapons that are totally unsuited for the sorts of counterinsurgency wars that the U.S. fights. The, the biggest part of the military budget goes to buy enormously complex weapons, many of which were designed decades ago to fight a Soviet Union that no longer exists. And the more recent ones for wars, you know, for sort of fantasy wars that the military leadership imagines might someday be fought with China or Russia. And, you know, these are weapons that can't be used in the wars that the U.S. is actually fighting. So much of the military budget is wasted. And, you know, these weapons continue to be built even though they have no use, you know, partly because they're enormously profitable for the companies that make them. And these companies have enormous leverage to get Congress to continue spending on those. And the other is that they're good for the careers of high-ranking officers. If you're an officer in the U.S. military, your career isn't about commanding soldiers. It's about managing a weapon system. And if you want to make a career in the military that's going to last for 20 or 30 years, the best way to get ahead is to attach yourself to a complex high-tech weapon that's going to be in production for decades. So the weapon will be there as long as you're in the Army, Navy, or 
Air Force. And then when you retire, you will then be hired by the company that manufactures this weapon. And so you can have a you know, very profitable retirement. If instead you make your career commanding counterinsurgency, you're going to be in a much more vulnerable position. You know, these wars, as we see, come and go. You know, they're less prestigious. They're hard to win. So you're not going to be covered in glory if you go to Iraq and Afghanistan and command soldiers there. And, you know, so understandably, officers prefer to attach themselves to these weapons and they become powerful advocates for maintaining those. So that's one factor. You know, another is actually a good development that there's increasing aversion to casualties. You know, the number of American dead that the public is willing to accept has dropped drastically. You know, if we look at Vietnam, it was only as casually as past 20 or 30,000 American dead that there was widespread opposition in the U.S. and pressure on Johnson and then Nixon to wind down the war. In the case of Iraq, it was when the casualties got to 2,000. So there's much less tolerance for casualties, and that affects how the U.S. military is able to fight these wars. You know, they need to keep soldiers as far away from the local population as possible, which means that they don't get local intelligence. You know, they're interacting through machines, killing local people through drones, you know, pulling up to a building where they think insurgents are in a tank and saying, you have 30 seconds to get out with your hands up and then we're going to blow up this building. You know, none of that's a basis for winning any sort of local support. And then the third factor is the extension of neoliberal economic policies to the countries that the U.S. is attacking. What that means is that these wars are seen as opportunities to extract resources from these countries. So when Bush invaded Iraq, you know, his administration fairly openly said, we're going to pay for this with Iraqi oil. Our big goal is to make the Iraqis privatize their oil industries so that American oil companies can get in there and win these concessions and reap most of the profits from that. And if you do things in that way, there isn't money locally that allows the government that the U.S. has put in power to buy off enough supporters to have a political base, you know, to have loyal people who, you know, can maintain an administration. Sociologist Richard Lockman is my guest. He's the author of First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship. So given the argument that you've made that the U.S. is a power, a hegemon in decline, I should say that there are those on the left who are quite skeptical of the idea that the U.S. is in decline, seeing it as wishful thinking for a left that itself is weak. And I wanted to ask you about your response to that and, and how we see the terrain, how that might affect the kind of struggles that we on the left might mount. Because, of course, we might say, well, the decline domestically of wages or the healthcare system is something worth fighting. But in fact, we might want to accelerate to the degree we can the decline of the U.S. as a global power. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on the left, we can have one strategy for domestic issues and another one for foreign and military ones that domestically, we need to focus on weakening the power of these elites that, you know, as the U.S. declines, and this was true in the case of the Netherlands and to some degree Britain as well, domestic elites became more powerful and they were able to weaken the working class in these countries. So, you know, if you have these gigantic monopolistic corporations, they have you know, all sorts of leverage to reduce wages, to undercut unions, to get the national as well as state and local governments to send subsidies in their direction, to undo regulations that 
protect our health and safety. And so we don't want to accelerate decline in that way because it's going to strengthen these elites. You know, we need to find ways to weaken these elites, to identify points of vulnerability where they can be divided, and also to build bases of working class power. You know, certainly reviving unions would be the most effective way to do that, but we need to look at different bases of organizations that can capture the interests of ordinary people. When it comes to foreign policy, the U.S. role in the world is you know, almost entirely a negative one. So the weakening of the U.S. is something that overall will be positive, positive for the U.S. and that we're not going to be sending troops abroad, but even more positive for people elsewhere in the world because the U.S. won't be arriving and raining down death and destruction and the U.S. won't be subverting elections and installing reactionary governments around the world. And so, you know, by trying to, you know, make clear that when the U.S. fights wars abroad, these go badly, you know, putting the emphasis that anti-war people have done, you know, during the Afghan and Iraq wars on drawing attention to the death and suffering of American soldiers, I think has been quite effective. And, you know, as the U.S. becomes less able to fight, this is going to allow countries elsewhere in the world to not feel that they have to give in to demands by the U.S. government or U.S. corporations. You've written elsewhere about the most effective ways, as you see it, to challenge elites. And I wanted to ask you to tell us what you think such strategies and tactics might be in the case of U.S. hegemony, bearing in mind that you also argue that the kind of politics that tend to come out of a hegemon in decline often are either despairing politics or an attraction to, say, far-right politics and leaders. Yeah, I mean, certainly decline creates a great deal of resentment. And, you know, the appeal of Trump or reactionary leaders in other countries is, you know, in part you know, has a material basis in the fact that most people are worse off. And, you know, so the question becomes, you know, what explanation are people going to hear for why they're doing badly? And of course, the reactionary one is they're internal traitors or, you know, they're immigrants who are coming, who are taking away your homes and your jobs. And what we need to do is offer an alternative explanation. And, you know, part of the difficulty is, you know, not just organizational, the lack of unions, the lack of effective mass member organizations, but also the lack of information and analysis. You know, most Americans, you know, have very little idea of what their government spends money on, what policies they're pursuing. And to the extent that we can make that clear, that can provide a basis for a left politics. I mean, we've you know seen a little bit of that in the defund the police movement. You know, most people have no idea what a big percentage of their city or town's budgets go to the police. And when they hear that, in many cases, they say, you know, this is way too much. You know, this is shouldn't be the big priority that it is. You know, similarly. You know, we now have decades of polls where, you know, Americans way underestimate the percentage of the federal budget that goes to the military. And, you know, even, it's, uh, even though the, their estimate is much lower than it is, they still feel that that, you know, unrealistic estimate is too high. So, you know, if we can make people aware of where the federal budget goes, you know, what's being funded and what isn't, you know, that can, on its own, already, you know, provide a political basis for opposition and for pushing for 
different priorities. So we need to work on both of these fronts, you know, trying to build and rebuild organizations that can mobilize people, bring people together, but also in terms of information and education. Richard Lachman, thank you so much for joining me again here on Against the Grain. It was a pleasure. Richard Lachman is professor of sociology at the State University of New York, Albany. He's the author of First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship, Elite Politics and the Decline of Great Powers. Verso published that book, and you can find a link to it on againstthegrain.org. He's also the author of Capitalists in Spite of Themselves, Elite Conflict and Economic Transitions in Early Modern Europe. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>